We do have fun in here. Never mind. There's some trials. Some trials I don't need. All right. Well, remember I gave you an assignment last week. Had some questions for you to consider and to think about. One of them is, why is the love of money the root of all sorts of evil? What did you come up with? What did you think about this past week? How would you answer that? Why is money the root of all sorts of evil? The love of money, okay. Why is it? Takes our eyes off God. Greed. Greed. Envy. Envy. Linda? It supplants God. Okay, supplants God. Anna? Okay, power corrupts. Okay, Carolyn? It makes you, yeah. Money is the thing that you have confidence in. All right, placing confidence in it, trusting it. If we have money, then we relax and say, okay, you know, we trust in that rather than trusting in God. Yes? Money allows you access to, say, other sins you wouldn't be otherwise be able to do. All right. That's right. It allows <coughs> access to other sins. Yes? Okay, becomes our idol. All right, so we're willing to commit sin in order to gain more money. All right, so this is just some of the ways then that the love of money corrupts. The love of money is the root of all sorts, all kinds of evil. Uh, What about the love of money distracting us from our responsibilities and our families? Uh, We can get so busy in making money that we don't take care of our families, our wife, our uh, children. And so it it just multiplies in very many ways. Well, that was one question. And the other question was, what good qualities does money possess? Now that we've talked about the love of money being the root of all sorts of evil, uh, Scripture also talks about how that uh, money itself has some good uses. What are some, Betty? Okay, to do good with it. Dick? All right, remember what Paul said in Ephesians? We are not to steal anymore, but rather to work with our hands in order to do what? In order to do good to others, in order to provide for the needs of others. Okay, what else is good about, what, what are some of the good aspects of money? Allows us to be good stewards. Allows us to be good stewards? Okay, all right. Another, Butch? Okay. <laughs> All right, it's a, it's a medium of exchange that allows us to do things across the world that we would not be able to do otherwise. How would you, if you were a beet farmer and had no such thing as money that could be utilized in exchange, how would you ever support missions in uh, India or in uh, South America or in Africa? Are you going to transport your beets over there and give them to the missionaries? You know, it, it might spoil by the time they get there. So money aids us in being able to help ministries worldwide. Come back this summer. Come back this summer, Mike says. <laughs> the topic this summer is uh, business to the glory of God. Talks a lot about these principles. All right, what else? What are some of the other good things about money? All right. Okay. All right, the support of ministry. All right. Any others before I? Yes. Um, not large amounts of money, but just money in 
All right. And what does it say? What does the scripture say? What does Paul say? He who does not take care of his own family is worse than an infidel, worse than an unbeliever. You don't work, you don't eat also. Okay. Don't work, you don't eat. So it's a, a, a good thing about money is it allows you to eat, right? Are any of us suffering from not eating? <laughs> or is it eating too much right now, right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, some of the things that we've uh, done here with money, uh, notice what happens with money. I've got a few of the things up here that are taken from a book, by, uh, The Business for the Glory of God by Wayne Grudem. And he said, it is more widely accepted than bartered goods of any kind, including food. It lasts longer than most goods. It is more transportable than other goods. Everyone is willing to exchange goods for money. It stores value until exchanged or spent. Uh, it makes voluntary exchanges more fair, less wasteful, and far more extensive. Those are just some of the thoughts about money, about why money is something that is a necessity in the life that we live. The more it's, more it's printed, the less it's value. Yes, the more it's printed, the less it's value. And here's what we can do as good stewards. As good stewards, uh, we can employ money to glorify God. It allows us to exercise rulership over the things of the world. Remember that when God created man, he said for them to do what? To have dominion over the earth. And uh, so this allows us to participate in that. Because where does money come from? Where does gold and silver come from? It comes from the ground. It's part of the earth. Uh, the, uh, if we're farmers, we're producing from the earth. Uh, the different things that go on in that fashion. If we're builders, we're using the trees for wood. We're using... Uh, clay for brick and we go on down the line we are then stewards of earth's resources and allows us then to participate in what God designed men to participate in and then in giving to others we imitate God's mercy and love you see it's not just that we're sharing what we have it's that we the whole purpose of of what we are doing on earth is to be imitators of God we are, to, we are in the image of God. And therefore, as he is merciful, we are to be merciful. As he is compassionate, we are to be compassionate. As he is giving, we are to be giving. And so money allows us to participate in that realm as well. And sometimes we don't stop to think about that. Uh, we don't think about it enough. Uh, if we were to think this, when a beggar comes up to us on the street or when we go to the store outside the store, and ask us for help, maybe we might think instead of why should I give him my hard-earned dollar or why doesn't he go get a job, maybe we'd stop and think God is merciful, I need to be merciful, he's gracious, I need to be gracious. Grace is based not upon what someone earns but on what is freely given that they have not earned. And to, to use that to give it joyfully and cheerfully and with a testimony and with a witness that says, I'm giving this to you because I want to exhibit the mercy of God and, and his grace, and there's even a greater gift that he has for you, eternal life and forgiveness of sins. We need to perhaps think of that more, that when we use our money, we're exhibiting the character of God. And then we can expand and strengthen gospel ministries worldwide. Those are just a few things. Yes, Tom. Going back to Give a beggar or a, a drunk on the street money. Mm -hmm. Now I've heard folks give money to turn into alcohol. 
Hmm. Right. Should I take him buy a meal or buy him some food? Sure. Uh, in fact, uh, if you have any idea that the person's just going to turn around and convert it to drugs or alcohol, uh, instead say, well, let me go fill up your car with gasoline. Let me uh, do this. Uh, not too long ago, a fellow stopped me at the, the uh, uh, filling station over on uh, uh, Soledad Canyon when I was getting some gas, and he asked for money to get home. And I said, well, you need it for gas? And he said, yes. And I said, pull your car up here because I was afraid. I'd seen him there before, and I thought, you know, this guy's got some sort of scam going. So let me just ask. He refused to pull his car up. Yeah. And he left me alone after that. <laughs> yeah, so yes, Tom, there's, there's a sense, too, in which, remember, God is wise as well as gracious, and sometimes we need to help prevent them from pursuing an addiction or prevent them from uh, committing more fraud and just, uh, you know, be realistic in it. It's, it's not that we don't need to think when we're doing these things. Okay, now the last question I gave you was this one. What can you do this week? What did you do last week to enhance the gladness of your heart? Remember we had that stated right there in Ecclesiastes 5.20, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. How did you keep occupied with the gladness of your heart this past week? What did you do to do that? Anyone? Yes, Pauline. Okay, focused on the Lord and gave thanks. Okay, who else? Marv. Volunteering out of grace to you. All right, he volunteered out of grace to you. And that occupies with joy, doesn't it? I mean, just talk to Marv about that. Because you can tell he really, it, that gives him joy. He enjoys it. It's a ministry. It's a ministry. Reaching out to many, many people around the world with the materials from Grace to You and to go out there and volunteer. Okay, what else did you do to occupy your heart with joy? Work. Worked. Okay, that's good, Andre. <laughs> we do need to work, don't we? It's part, as Tom said, if we don't work, we don't eat. Uh, it's, uh, we, we work in order to be able to give to others. Work also teaches us discipline. Work is part of the uh, a mandate that God gives to man. I mean, he put Adam and in in Eve in the garden, and he just put him there and say, take the vacation? No, he put him there to till the ground and to care for the garden. And so work can be an occupation of joy. All right? I know some of you may think, oh, boy, that's joy? I can hardly wait. Yeah, we're praying for Mike, all right? He needs joy for his work, all right? Rusty. Mm -hmm. and um, watching my children compete in sports, okay. and also being a homeless guy, being All right. on the street. Amen. I took him in, and I had the other, actually, my uh, experiences is they always seem to want to Okay. And did you feel joyful after those things? Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you watch a person that does something like that, and you look at them after they've done it, and they've got a smile on their face. Mm -hmm. Never a frown or scowl. They're smiling. Because it's joyful just to play with your children, care for your children, take time for other children, uh, 
feed someone that's homeless, help someone out, uh, all those things. This is how we occupy our lives with joy. And it's all involved in service and living out the word of God. We could talk about prayer. We could talk about reading the scriptures. We could go on and on with all the different things that we could have occupied our lives with this past week to bring joy and to exercise joy. All right? Well, let's move on. As we move into uh, this uh, next section, chapter 6, and I trust you have the handout there. This, this chapter 6 is brief, but boy, it is powerful. Uh, Solomon is building upon a background here. Uh, in chapter 5, verses 10 through 17, he had discussed the role of wealth in one's life. In verses 18 to 19, he had talked about how God has given people the ability to enjoy what he has given them, those gifts of possessions, of wealth, and of honor. And then in verse uh, 20, talked about the relief from the toil and trouble of everyday life by occupying ourselves with the joy of enjoying that which God has given, whether it's family, whether it's a job, whether it's home, whether it's service for others, these types of things. Uh, this is how chapter 5 then wraps up. And now in chapter 6, he is going to then present us with uh, a series of three examples. And these three examples illustrate the seeming inequities, the inequalities that we see in life. Uh, none of us can, 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 can help but notice that in everyday life, there is unfairness, all right? I can remember telling our boys one time uh, when uh, I learned that I had disciplined one of them unfairly, <laughs> wrongly. Boy, oh boy, that gets you in trouble as a parent. You know, you think you've got identified, you've identified the culprit, and so you proceed full steam ahead, and then find out to your chagrin later you got the wrong culprit. And the poor, innocent little culprit sits over the corner just grinning, you know, all during the whole thing, doesn't admit that he was the one who caused the problem. So when I went back in to apologize to our older son for uh, punishing him instead of his younger brother for what happened, we, you know, everyone, as our daughter says, Tim could never do anything wrong. So you know, we always picked on the older guy because he seemed to always do something wrong. Tim takes more after dad than his younger brother. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, it, it, it's one of those things we do. And so as I was sitting there talking to him about it, I said, son, you know, you, you've got to learn just to have a good spirit about this. I know that I disciplined you unfairly, and I have apologized to you. And he was still not very happy. And I said, you know, it, just remember, you have imperfect parents. And God allows you to have imperfect parents because he's preparing you for real life. Because life itself is not fair. So every time you are unfairly punished by me, just keep in mind it's going to help you be a better man when you face the unfairness of life. <laughs> you should have just handed him the belt and said, now it's your turn. So anyway, this is what Solomon's going to talk about then. He's going to talk about these seeming inequities, these unfairnesses that are faced in life. And the first inequity, apparent inequity, is that someone can possess wealth and possess everything and yet never be.
be able to enjoy it. That's right. Now, in order to present these inequities, Solomon, first of all, presents in chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, 15, an evaluation of man's outward fortunes. Just let you see where we're headed in the future in, in Ecclesiastes. In chapter 7, verse 16, through the end of the chapter, an evaluation of man's character. Why? Because, you see, these two areas are what involve or what create some of the inequities. And then lastly, a consideration of the role of government. And this is another area where there are seeming inequities that appear. And so for uh, three chapters here, Solomon is going to talk about these apparent inequities. Now, as we get started on this, and before we talk about case history number one, I want to share with you something that, that uh, helps to highlight that everything is not as it might appear. And that's part of what we're looking at here. That even the inequities are not always what they might appear. This is a, an official United States Navy radio communique. Voice number one. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Voice number two responds, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Voice one, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Voice number two, no, I say again, divert your course. Voice one. This is the aircraft carrier Enterprise. We are a large warship of the US Navy. Divert your course now. Voice two. This is a lighthouse. <laughs> your call. <laughs> I, I am a seaman second class, and this is a lighthouse. <laughs> I'll tell you. See, things are not always as they appear, are they? You ever face something like that in life? And you think, boy, I've got a right to go there. And then when you find out that uh, it's not a good idea. It's, it's kind of like taking a semi on on the road, right? <laughs> Saying, let him move over. Well, that may be a losing cause. Well, case number one is an individual who has a full treasury in verses one and two. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. So first of all, we have the point here that prosperity is not always as good as it might appear. Because you can have prosperity, but if you don't have the opportunity to enjoy it, of what use is it? And there's a lot of people putting up a lot that they're not going to be able to take with them and they're not going to enjoy. And in some cases, there may be no one left to leave it to, or there may be no one who wants what they have. 
In verse 1, it begins with there is. This there is phrase occurs a number of times in Ecclesiastes. We've seen it in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5, now in 6. We'll see it in 7, 8, and 10 as well. A number of times. Almost every single time that Solomon uses this, it introduces a specific example or a case history that he employs in order to bring about his argument, in order to illustrate what he's talking about. In other words, he's saying, this is a reality. This is something I have observed. And so we need to pay attention to each one of these. But notice that his viewpoint of discussion is clearly identified there in verse 1. It's under the sun. It's under the sun. And the point of that is that he's talking here about mere mortals. Mere mortals who are conducting their way of life without God. Without God. They've left God out of the equation. Uh, they're living under the sun with no regard for above the sun. And that individual will face many enigmas, many problems, many situations for which he will not be able to see any immediate solution. Look at the parallels here. You have a chart on your uh, second page of the handout there on page 40 that parallels our previous section, chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, and chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And notice how they parallel. Here is what I've seen to be good and fitting, and then there is an evil. And they're both involved with wealth, with possessions, with how God has given something to an individual. And then 5.19 is talking about every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, and 6.2 says a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor. <coughs> And so it's the same type situation. It's the same type individual in, in many regards. But the difference is the first enjoys it because God is the one who empowers that enjoyment. And the other one does not enjoy it because God is not empowering their enjoyment. And so the question comes, why does God empower one to enjoy and not the other? What's your response? Why is that? How can that be? He's sovereign. What else? He knows what's best. Someone look at James 5, 1 to 6. Find it there and read it to us with a good strong voice. See if this provides perhaps one of the possible reasons why one individual does not receive the power to enjoy what God has given. Come now, you rich, and weep and howl for your men's miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will be witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers is mowed, your fields and which have been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. Okay, why is it that those, that group of rich people are not enjoying their wealth and why is their wealth really, in essence, rotting? They're selfish. They were using it only for themselves in wanton pleasure. What else were they doing? Oppressing the poor, withholding legitimate wages from their employees, all right? Persecuting 
So what was wrong with those rich people that that happened with their wealth? What's, what's, what's the core problem? What again, Diamond? They're not honoring God. Butch? The wealth is their God. What else? Uh, say that again. Pride. Okay, pride. Thank you, Patty. Pride. What else? What is this telling you about the individual? Ah, Gary has it. He points right here. It is a heart problem. Right? Their hearts are not right with God. You see, that's one of the reasons. It's not the only reason. It's one of the reasons why some people can never enjoy that which God has allowed them to have is because their hearts are not right with God. All right? Now, when we think about this, we say that, uh, well, it's one reason. It can't be the only reason that gold loses its glitter. What are some other reasons? What about a believer who is unable to enjoy what God has given? What might be the reason there? Okay, the worry and anxiety that they might lose it, which again exhibits what? A lack of faith. Another heart problem, right? Just a heart problem of a different sort. It's a heart problem of a believer getting distracted by the things of the world. What did Paul say about a man named Demas? He loved the world. That's right. And so this is what can happen to believers. We can get distracted and we can have a heart problem as well. It's not exactly the same as the unbeliever's unrighteous heart who does not leave room for God, whose idol is money, but it's just the idea that we allow those things to get in the way of our right relationship to God. We do not use that rightly and therefore we have no joy. If Rusty and seeing that homeless man were to just say in his heart, oh, let him get out of here. I don't want anything to do with him. And, and, and just really in his heart, curse the man and walk away with not one ounce of compassion, would you have had any joy after that, Rusty? No. No. Because as soon as we start talking like that and thinking like that, we, our heart problem begins to affect our very countenance. We become grumpy, grouchy. We become bitter. We become taciturn. We become a type of person that other people don't like being around. And by his giving to that homeless man, give him some food, he left there with joy. You see, he didn't hang on to what he had. He used what he had for the glory of God. That makes a big difference. Tom? You remember that the Lord giveth and the Lord takes away. Amen. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job. And that's the, the next point here. God alone controls both the giving and the enjoying. Look, look at that very carefully. Because it says here in verse 2, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them. It's God who is in control. And in this particular case, he says there's a foreigner involved. Now before we get there, let's back up there to that phrase, their riches, wealth, and honor. In 2 Chronicles 1, 11 to 12, we have that same riches, wealth, and honor referred to. And this is in the time of Solomon. This is the account of how Solomon had asked God for wisdom. And God said, since you did not ask for riches and wealth or honor, but you asked, or nor did you last for a long life, 
but you ask for wisdom, therefore I'm going to give you wisdom, but in addition, I'm also going to give you wealth and riches and honor. It's fascinating, the same three words used there are used here. So does that mean that perhaps Solomon is case history number one? If so, who would be the foreigner that's involved here to which his money is going? His wives, number one, <laughs> all right. Those idol-worshiping wives who are going to return home perhaps to their fathers in other countries like Pharaoh's daughter after Solomon's dead and gone. What else? He was told by a prophet. Remember we talked about this back in chapter 4. He was told by a prophet that his kingdom would be placed into the hands of a man who had once been his servant a man whom he'd driven out of the country and had fled to Egypt where he found refuge. And he was to return, and he would return, and he would take away ten of the tribes of Israel from the power and authority of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. A man named Jeroboam, a stranger, an alien in the sense he comes from Egypt, an alien, though, just in the sense that he's outside the family. He's not one of the sons. His royalty. And on the other hand, too, you have a son, Rehoboam, who's going to waste a lot of the money. He's going to be involved in that, too. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Rehoboam is amazing. Uh, dismayingly amazing. One's possessions are exclusively gifts of God. And as easily as God gives, so God takes away to give to others. That just reinforces that same thought again. And that lets us know there are no guarantees with our possessions, are there? There are no guarantees. They're God's, not ours. So if a thief breaks in and steals, God's in control of that just as much as it is anything else. Just don't take my motorcycle. <laughs> Be careful of that. My wife has some stories about that. How you, how, you, how you have something you say no to God about, you know, God, anything but this, ask her what he does. <laughs> That's, that's where God then says, aha, there's your idol. I'm going to take it away. Okay, case history number two. We had a full treasury for case history number one. We have a full quiver for case number two. So what's that about? Many arrows, but many children. Many children. Many children, exactly. And notice how this individual is described, beginning in verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children. Hey, that's more than the Grisanti family. <laughs> That's right. Hey, this is ten times as many as Job had, right? If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he. Now, this case history is, is fascinating because, you know, normally in Scripture, you have children as a blessing. This quiver image that I used is from Psalm 127. Verses three, and five, 3 to 5, which we're all familiar with. And, uh, you know, Solomon might match this description because with all those wives and concubines, 300 wives, 1,000 concubines, that's a, you know, there's a, probably a lot of children out there, right? There's a few. All right? And, and look at other passages of Scripture. You have Gideon had 70 sons, we're told, in Judges chapter 8, verse 30. Ahab also had 70 sons. But look at the son of Solomon, Rehoboam. He fathered 28 sons and 60 
daughters. 88 children. You know, maybe case history number one is Solomon, but perhaps case history number two is his own son. Because he already knows from the prophet's words that his son's kingdom isn't going to turn out too well. And he's saying basically it's better he had never been born. This idea of a miscarriage, a stillbirth, a stillborn, uh, it's, the, it's, it's a contrast here. And, and it's the idea uh, in the Old Testament often of uh, a curse in Psalm 58. It's a curse upon the wicked that they might be treated that way. Job talked about the fact that he had suffered so much the loss of his children, loss of all that he had, the loss of his health as well, that it would be better that he'd never been born because then he'd be at rest. So we have quite a contrast. It's ironic that the man with a hundred children will be worse off than an unborn fetus. That's a huge contrast. That's a powerful contrast. But let's talk about this a minute. How is it possible for someone with so many children not to be able to be satisfied and enjoy life? Why do large families, many children sometimes note, fail to provide satisfaction and joy? All right. All right. Good. All of these are good reasons. What else? Uh, pardon? Okay. God can take children away as well. Besides giving the children, he can take them away. And we have many examples of uh, large families where they've also lost a large number of children. Uh, and, and uh, of course, that can happen to small families. It can happen to large families. It can happen to a family that has an only child. They can lose it. And so, uh, and look at Job. Job lost all ten of his children. Yes, Butch. All right. Okay, what, is it, what are parents to do with children, according to the word? Train them up. Bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Now, do you think Ahab did that with his 70 sons? I don't think so, right? You think Rehoboam did that with his 28 sons and 60 daughters? Maybe with the sons. Pardon? <laughs> Maybe not with the sons. Maybe not with the sons, huh? All right. So you see, there's part of the issue. Part of the problem is true of a small family as well as a large family if we don't bring up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But we, all these issues we've mentioned can all contribute to, toward not being satisfied and not being happy and not uh, being, uh, having a life filled with joy when you would think that a house full of children would be filled with all kinds of joy. But there's all kinds of difficulties too that we face in both the raising of children the requirements that it brings upon families, the divisions it can cause within families, sibling rivalry, all these things. But the biggest issue of all is it goes back again to the heart, doesn't it? It goes back again to the heart. Well, yes. That's right.
It can disappear. That's right. That's right. We're not the Holy Spirit, are we? And that's the hard thing to learn, is that uh, our children, too, at a certain point, they, have, they are accountable to God. And uh, it's hard for us to sometimes realize that. Well, the comparison to a miscarriage focus on the quality of life, remember, not the duration of life. We see the contrast there, duration. A, a miscarriage, a stillborn child never sees the light of the sun, doesn't really live on earth. Has, as, as it talks about here, they go into obscurity. They have no name. They're not known by others. All of these issues. Uh, and they themselves do not know anything of life under the sun and the enigmas of life under the sun. And this phrase that is used here in uh, verse 3 uh, of saying, uh, better the miscarriage than he, uh, or excuse me, it is better off than he, uh, is uh, the, in verse 5. It is better off than he is literally more rest has this one than that one. The stillborn infant has more rest than the man with a hundred children who is unable to enjoy his life, his family, or anything else. All right? Quite a contrast. Now, it talks about an improper burial. Uh, I have to share this with you. I want you to pray for me this week. I, have, I found out yesterday that I'll be conducting a funeral, and the funeral has to do with a lady uh, in uh, uh, Nita and Rick Lalonde's family. And uh, the family around this lady is primarily Muslim. And uh, they've asked that a Christian funeral be given to this lady, and I was asked to, to uh, do that. So on Tuesday afternoon at 2.30, be praying be down at Forest Lawn conducting the funeral service for this. And uh, I, I, I had to just, just pray the Lord and say, Lord, how did you know, in essence, but then say, yeah, you do know because you know all things. But in studying chapter 6, studying about this improper burial, I spent a lot of time on what's the Old Testament concept of death, what's the Old Testament concept of burial, what's the Old Testament concept of a funeral not knowing that God was preparing me to conduct a funeral uh, in perhaps some unusual circumstances. So be praying for wisdom as I conduct that. Yeah, in the background, Bangladesh coming. In fact, we, we had taken a Bangladeshi brother who had come to the Shepherds Conference to the restaurant that this deceased lady had established over in the valley, San Fernando Valley. And so it's kind of interesting. We've been in the restaurant. We've already seen some of the family. And uh, now we'll have an opportunity to minister to the family. So pray that the gospel be very clear in giving it to this family. But, uh, you know, the, the Old Testament writers, uh, burial was a significant aspect. Showing respect for the deceased was important. It was significant. And that's why it's brought out here. It's, it's looked at here as... In the Old Testament, to not receive a proper burial was, again, an element of a curse. It was used for those who were uh, totally outlawed to God in many regards, those who were under his judgment. You think of, the, of Jezebel and the fact that she wasn't buried. She was left to the dogs. And you have uh, the uh, king of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14, whose body is cast out. We have others mentioned as being given the burial of a donkey, which means just dumped in the garbage heap. And that's, it was to show disrespect, dishonor. And one of the things I want to convey to this group, because they're Muslims and they do believe that there's significance to burying uh, individuals, their loved ones, is to remind them that they have come to show respect and to show honor 
to this individual who's deceased. And that in showing that respect and honor, they also need to honor her circumstances and they need to understand what her current condition is and what she might want them to know. They need to show respect by listening to the words that she might want them to hear. And I'm going to go to Luke 16 and talk about the uh, rich man and Lazarus and uh, how uh, the uh, rich man said, uh, send someone so my, to tell my brothers so that they don't come here. And uh, how that uh, Jesus said, uh, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. If they don't hear them, they will not listen even if one is resurrected from the dead. And I'm going to use that as the basis of presenting the gospel. But it's part of that listening to what the dead would have us understand. And, and, and this is one example of, that Jesus gave that helps us to understand the thinking of the departed, where they're at if they are not in the presence of God. And then to say that if she has placed her faith in Jesus Christ and she is with him, her desire would still be the same, that they would not go to the place of torment, but they come to where Jesus is. And so that's the message I want to get across. So be praying about that as we look at that. Was there a hand over here? Yes, Jan. That's right. Yes. Yeah. This is a Muslim this thing. Is a huge thing. Yes. It's very huge. And so I'm going to use that as a means of getting them to stop and listen, show respect for the dead, and listen to what the dead would have them know. All right. Why are some people unmourned in their death? Their attitude, the way they live their life. If, if a person is bitter and is angry all through their lives, people are relieved they're gone, right? And uh, so we need to examine our own lives, don't we? Everyone else probably has a family member somewhere back in the family tree that we say, man, you know, the, the older they got, the worse they got. Uh, they weren't sweeter because they never were sweet. You see, if we're never sweet, if we never really are gracious and loving, and compassionate, uh, as we get older, we tend to be exactly what we are. <laughs> and if we are angry and bitter, we're going to get more angry and more bitter the older we get. And by the time we reach the time when we're leaving this life, we may have succeeded in cutting off ties and respect and honor from everyone around us. And so what do we need to do now? We need to solve our heart problems now. Right? We need to start even when we're young. That's the point of Ecclesiastes we're going to get to later. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. If we get our hearts right now, if we practice these things now, as we get older, we will grow in that. And our, our default attitude will be that. But if we nurse anger, if we nurse bitterness, if we nurse grouchiness, grumpiness, and all those things impatience and everything else, the older we get, the more we will exhibit our true nature. Because we get to a point really where we no longer care what people think because after all, we're not going to be around much longer anyway. So it really behooves us to get our hearts right now. Dick? I remember along this line,
<laughs> oh my. Well, let's do something. We're not through with the chapter, but I want us to sing. We haven't sung in a long time. And so why don't we stand and sing and then pray and then we'll leave. Uh, we, we've, got a, we've got a good note here to remember. And I think it's a good for you to remember to pray for that funeral also, if you would please. This world is not my home, right? This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can feel at home in this world anymore. Oh Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I couldn't advance to the course because I didn't have it up there. That's bowed prayer. Father, we thank you for this lesson in Ecclesiastes 6 today. Help us, Lord, to make certain we get our hearts right. We've talked a lot about those situations where there are apparent inequities. And Lord, we know there are those situations where you are the one who controls all these things and sometimes it's just your will that you give and that you take. And other times you take because of how we are. Lord, help us to live lives in such a way that that will not be the reason that you take. That will be for your glory, that will be for means of causing us to grow for means of helping to spread your uh, gospel rather than to teach us that we need to get our hearts right. We pray also that we might exhibit a hope that we have that goes beyond the Son. It goes to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and that we, by placing our faith in him and living for him, will have a display of the hope that others will want to know about and will ask a reason of it from us. I thank you for each one here today, and I pray as we go through this coming week, we might contemplate these three case, case histories here in this chapter and also look carefully at what is that which brings satisfaction and realize that you are the sovereign Lord and creator of all things, and you are Lord of our lives. Help us to live that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.